In this episode, we're having a one-word conversation about leaders. From the highest offices in the land to our daily interactions with others, leaders matter. Let's talk about how and why. All right. So there's so much going on right now outside the classroom, inside the classroom, on campus, off campus, and leadership leaders are really key uh, in moments like this. So Maria, just generally, how are you thinking about leaders right now? And, and specifically the role that leaders play in moments of unrest um, um, and uncertainty? Loaded question. Yes. Given the time, but thank you for um, allowing me to speak first. Um, you know, I, I think as Leadership in general, I think, in this society, in Western kind of models, has been very patriarchal and male-centered and male-dominated. And um, that's not necessarily something that I've thought about consciously. And I mean, I teach about this in some of my, in my humanities classes, but like right now, I think I'm starting first. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. I am also a mother and a partner a community member, a daughter. So all of these identities that that I carry, that I embody, I think are useful in terms of, not only useful, but inform the way that I see and experience leadership and myself in, in leadership positions. So it makes sense to me that we are in turmoil because I think that we have been out of balance you know, we have been out of balance in terms of understanding how to lead and how to um, have vision that is inclusive of multiple identities. And I think about like, first of all, the spectrum of gender, right? Um, because I don't wanna pin, pit this as like a binary of like there's women's form of leadership and then there's men, but there are. And then there's also a variety. Uh, so, we, we need to dismantle and just really challenge the notions of patriarchal structures that are rooted in sexism mm -hmm. and that are rooted in colonial uh, models and paradigms as well. So it's no wonder that um, we are in turmoil and that people of color who have been victims of colonialism, but we're also survivors, you know, that we are that we are protesting, that we are manifesting and uh, manifesting, protesting to manifest a different vision of life, one that humanizes us in the face of a patriarchal monster and a sexist misogynist monster. And I'm gonna say it, you know, of, of 45. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's difficult. So I think right now we're we're having this moment of reckoning, at least for us that have been conscious of that legacy, right? Um, of the multiple, I think, legacies that come from, from that histor historical reality of, of colonization and genocide. So I know that's, you asked a loaded question and I'm just kind of gathering lots of information that's coming, but maybe that's where we anchor the conversation, right? Oh yeah. And how Absolutely. we anchor it. Luke, do you wanna, um kind of respond similarly. So how are you thinking of leaders right now in campus, outside of campus and the role that leaders play? Yeah, um, first I just wanna say that um, who I am, 
has a lot to do with what I think about that, right? Um, and who I come from. And uh, so I am the son of Eulogio Leonidas Lara, who is an immigrant, black, Afro-Ecuadorian. Um, and my mother is white. She is Kathy Marie Strang. And <clears throat> they're both musicians. They're both educators. I grew up in a house uh, where we only spoke Spanish. Uh, I learned English in school. And as activists, social activists in the 70s, 80s, uh, they demonstrated to me what leadership looks like. Uh, it's about taking action. It's about being with the people, bringing people together. Uh, it's about being responsive to injustices. Uh, that are being experienced by uh, low-income, uh, working-class um, people, uh, people of color. Uh, being on the, the right side of history and marching, protesting, um, always being critical of uh, when there's injustice. So that, that's my background. And, and they did that through education and music. And all those things require relationships and other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a response. You might be listening to music, but you're singing along. You're mm -hmm. there with others in a crowd, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when I think about leadership right now in these times, what, what the leadership that works is the leadership that brings people together, uh, that is collaborative, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not the type of leadership that's being displayed right now at the, the, the highest office of this country, right? Where there, there are decrees uh, and um, more dictatorial, right? Uh, this is the grassroots leadership that I think Maria was talking about. The, the, that is not the patriarchal, historical type of leadership that we've, we've experienced here. Uh, leadership to me is uh, being uh, collaborative, compassionate, reflective, uh, I, is, I embody that because I don't feel like I know everything and I can't do everything by myself. Mm. I, I need to engage with others. And in order to do that, I need to have a relationship with others, right? And so connecting with others one-on-one, -on -one, being proactive, preparing them. And that by the time we have a meeting with lots of people, a lot of work has already been done because of that, those relationships. So that by the time we get to the meeting, then we can actually get together and do some work, right? So I'll just leave it at that. And I'm sure there's much more we can say. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Luke. And then Joe, do you want to jump off with kind of the same thing? What are your thoughts on leadership, maybe based on uh, what, what's already been said or, or your own thoughts at coming into this conversation? Yeah, sure. I thought maybe going last, I'd have more time to think about good stuff to say, but I feel like I can put on the spot now. <laughs> um, I mean, I definitely... Second, both of what Maria and Luke have said, um, I, I, I think I've known for a long, a long time, even almost back in like high school, that a lot of how we perceive leadership, how it's portrayed, how there are training sessions for being leaders, right? The way all, the way all those things are framed, right? They're all very much like fostering this go-getter kind of dominance kind of mentality of, yeah, how do you take over? How do you take charge? How do you command people to do what you want them to do almost? Um, and it makes you wonder why um, that might foster certain types of 
personality types to <laughs> go into leadership positions. Um, anyway, let's not go there right now. But um, I think for me, that was, that's been obvious for a really long time. And uh, I think what Luke said too about not know, knowing that you don't know anything, right? That's a level of uh, maybe, you know, mastery or expertise you have to reach. But I don't think a leader can be truly effective in the largest variety of situations without having that in mind. Because most of what you do is informational and people are memory for how you might behave or make decisions in times of crises. But most of your work, most of your time is spent with the more forgettable stuff, right? So to speak. So yeah. um, in terms of like how I got there and my own background, I mean, um, I wasn't even born in this country. Um, my, my dad is Lebanese, my mom is Portuguese. Um, they met in college both of which they could barely afford, but they did in Belgium because that's what their parents thought was best for them. Um, we think in the US has, you know, it's that like immigrant mentality, right? That, you know, you wanna go be a doctor, be a lawyer, go get them, you know, get, right? Like they, they had that mentality even in their home countries because they, were, they weren't that well off necessarily. And, and so they decided to settle Lebanon. Um, we all know how that went, <laughs> given that they had to flee, um, being war refugees basically. So that's how I got to the US eventually. Um, and I think having that, that breadth being raised in a family where speaking four languages, kind of having that thrown around all the time and getting weird looks from everyone around you <laughs> in San Diego, you know, it, it's, uh, it really opens your eyes at an early age. And, you know, also growing up gay, but being raised Catholic as well was also an interesting conflict to resolve. So I always felt like I've been at that you know, liminal kind of boundary between many different spaces my whole life, just kind of bouncing off and figuring out where the hell am I? Um, so that, I think that's informed a lot of how I perceive leadership and kind of how I approach a lot of different situations. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. You know, when I think of leaders and I, I love that Maria and Luke both started off by talking about ancestry and who comes before us, because even on campus, you know, I, I look to, um, everyone in this room, but especially Maria and Luke as leaders, you know, Maria just coming off being academic Senate president, being the first woman of color in that space, Luke being our current uh, Senate president, but also, you know, he was vice president while Maria was um, academic Senate president. And I really just always paid close attention to their approach. And your approach was in partnership. And I, I want to know about like how that came about it's different than the dominant model and what we usually see in that kind of space. So can you both talk about that partnership? Did, you, did Were these coming out of conversations, this arrangement, the way that, because I would see you two, you know, always together, always, you know, uh, showing up and, and doing things collaboratively. And that was, I want to know how maybe that helped Luke prepare for where he is now, and then what that experience was like for Maria too. But first, how, how did that come about? I can't, I'll go first. Um, so yeah, so I'm coming off of uh, being academic Senate president, woohoo, pass the baton to Luke. <laughs> but you know, Luke talked about relationships and Luke and I have a professional history prior to before being, you know, academic Senate president. So we were both Puente coordinators. So we already like knew how to work with each other, did like a lot of um, trainings, you know, and just 
conocimientos, getting to know each other. Our families know each other. I know his wife, his children, my children play with, have played with his children. So there are threads of, of relationships and of family that bind us. And I think that when there is that trust and when there's that, um, you know, for, for good reason, like that history, that personal history, it makes for the professional environment um, experience to be more tolerable, but also we bring in, that we bring that into the, the confines of like the institutional structures, right? So it was important, at least for me to always have Luke by my side or together for one, because you need like that support. There's a lot that that goes on as an academic senate president in the mind, <laughs> you know, and in the interfacing with administrators, with other faculty. So you need the support. I don't, uh, just to kind of remain grounded and for sanity reasons, but when it's someone who's like almost your brother, you know, and your, your family, your relative, um, it makes it, it makes it softer for softer landings sometimes, you know, but it was also very intentional. Like it was intentional for me, for us to be visible together, right? right? That we would walk to these meetings together. As you said, Sean, we ran into you a lot of times and everyone, we ran into each other, right? Um, to sort of model, right? Model a way of being, of collaboration, of collegiality. We throw that word around Maricosta a lot but I don't know that we're as collegial in the way that I think Luke and I have been collegial um, in the sense of colega, you know? And so it was important and it was intentional to do that for political reasons, but also because we do need each other. We need each other. And if I'm gonna survive and thrive in an institution, I'm not gonna do it alone. You know, I'm gonna bring people with me we're going to bring each other along. And I think that's also a philosophy. You know, that's a philosophical um, thrust in leadership that it's collaborative consensus, um, collectivity versus top-down-ish. And I think that there are appropriate moments for delegation, right? And, and to take on, you know, just a singular person sort of thing to be the spokesperson. But I through family modeling, through cultural organizational modeling, which is where I learned as well how to do leadership. Uh, you learn other ways of, of existing in an organization. So um, so, so I think those, those aspects of our interpersonal um, connection are important. And obviously you saw those. Yeah, uh, Maria, you covered a lot of things and um that are very important. And I don't know if we want to give away all of our secrets, but, <laughs> but I think that that trust, that that's the that's number one thing. You know, when you think about a president and a vice president, the vice president's role is to be able to step into the place of the president. If you don't have somebody that you can completely trust to to represent you um, in moments that are very important, then um, that's not gonna work, right? And so Maria and I have that that history and uh, when we were paired and worked together for um th three years three or four years in puente uh that's where we got to to learn and and we we had a a program that we had to run and 
we basically had to work, we work with the students, um, but you know, being a, the president and vice president of academic senate, now you're working, you're like having to manage up. You're not just working with students, you're working with administrators. And so that takes another skill. So this was definitely um, a learning experience for me. And so Maria, as my colleague and friend, where well, we had a great relationship before, uh, I was able to learn from her uh, a lot in this role and, and to prepare me for, for being president. But I also want to talk about a little bit about that. Um, not that we had that that history together, but there is a um, there is a group of faculty on campus uh, that do get together, right? Uh, we identify as faculty of color. Uh, we identify with the issues uh, around equity, um, anti-racism, and and we we have found each other, each of us coming in at different points when we were hired, looking for that community. Um, and we realized we didn't have folks that looked like us or thought about the issues the way that we did, or even were concerned about the issues that we were concerned about in leadership positions. And, and so we had to strategize. And as a collective, we said, okay, who's tenured now? Who can we like really support and nudge and, and move in this direction? And um, the f the first person that we tapped was Maria, <laughs> you know. And so, luckily, she went. She was out there alone. And as soon as as soon as the opportunity came to, uh, I mean, visibly alone, she had a whole network behind her. Don't don't get that twisted. Okay, she had a whole network behind her. Nobody saw it, but that's that's that work, that relational work that happens uh, when you have a community, uh, not just not just elected people that are sitting around the table, and that only get together and talk every two weeks, but it's actually engaging your faculty and. Uh, bringing forward those issues that are important uh, around equity in our students and student preparation and 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 how we do that work as faculty. But um, in our culture, uh, right, our uh, Latinx, Chicanx, um, Raza cultures, uh, it is, there's something about leadership. You have to be invited into it. Um, there, it's not like, hey, who wants to volunteer to be the leader? Nobody will step up, okay? You have to be invited. And who invites you are your elders. That's how you bring people along. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this, so the structure that we have right now where you, you vote, you know, you, you nominate someone and then they have to run for election, that just doesn't make sense culturally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it's not inviting. It's not inviting, it's not personal. It's not bringing people into the fold. And so we have to really examine what, how we do that process to, um, to bring in different ways of knowing and being and being culturally responsive, right? Uh, if we wanna see diversity in, in our faculty leadership, in uh, other areas of leadership, then we need to be intentional about examining our systems, our processes so that uh, we're actually allowing that to happen. Uh, thinking about the, uh, the, those cultural aspects that are being ignored, who's being privileged and who's not in this process. Um, I can think of only one time in my life of all the leadership positions that I've had that I've actually said, this is, this is something that I've created. Uh, 
only one thing, and that was a church group that I have that's around um, people of color. And I, I brought people together. I didn't say, I, I want to have it. I said, hey, do you want to have this? It was a collaborative approach. But everything else, I've always been invited by an elder. Mm. Do you, we think you would be a good person to, to um, come into this. Would you be willing? And it's that personal connection over lunch, over dinner, over breaking bread, uh, and 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 you know we talk about Laura Rendon's validation theory. It's those agents uh, in and outside of the classroom that see our students for who they are and say, you know what, you we believe in you. And so we're all lifelong students, right? And so our elders are always our teachers, and mm -hmm. they bring us along. Uh, the way. And so we need to think about leadership in that as well. It sounds like the, you use the term, the network of colleagues, um, um, faculty of color that, that sort of came together in, in more or less a grassroots fashion and then realized, you know, there's these positions where we want to have a voice or we want to take a leadership role. It almost sounds to me, Luke, that, that, that there's an analogy there between the elder inviting someone to a leadership role and that community inviting someone to a leadership role that the leader is then sort of you know um, um, has that I don't want to say authority but just has that backing right that sort of right hands on the shoulders as, as that leader steps into whatever role it might be um, and then so uh, and and uh, that also makes me think of what Joe said earlier about training so there's there's some problems with how leadership in the academic senate is arranged and Luke you pointed those out um, and that could be more um, um, culturally sustaining. Um, but al also there's, there's a really cool uh, uh, facilitation of training built into the vice president president relationship sounds like. There's a, 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 a collaboration there, a passing on of, of uh, styles, skill sets, concerns, et cetera. Um, this is definitely not true of the department chair process. Um, I know some departments, it's, it's more uh, we shove each other into that role when it's that person's term, uh, uh, or it's just a, a voting process, but there's very little of that kind of passing of the torch or real sustained collaboration and relationship. Um, Joe, you're, you're now in a role of department chair, um, um, and I, I'm just wondering, how, like, how are you thinking of that role? How are you thinking of the process that got you to that role? Um, yeah, and maybe in response to some of the things that Luke and Maria were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our department is an interesting one, physical sciences. We're just a bunch of programs that have been slapped together. And historically, that was, uh, from what I know, what I've heard is the college used to have math and sciences kind of as a department at some point. And every program started branching off from that. The last to split off was chemistry many years ago. Right now, physics is the you know biggest program faculty, um, faculty-wise, and then we have geology, oceanography, earth science, astronomy, and we pass the torch. We are fairly low key. We, we all agree that we're all program leads and we all rely on each other. So that, that collaboration is already built in almost because of the nature of our department. Yeah, that's cool. But we, we definitely just pass the torch regardless um, in a seniority kind of like, who wants to do it kind of way. We know you don't want to, but um, my turn came up because of, you know, the two faculty kind of more senior than me were just couldn't do it. They weren't able to you know, from a variety of circumstances. So I just got the hot potato and I was like, sure, why not? I guess tenure, the tenure process is over. Let's, let's try this out. Um, but given the, you know, shelter in place orders, COVID, everything else going on, of course, it just became kind of a sudden ocean dive. And I obviously have had, I have, 
bunch of faculty on campus I can reach out to for support. Um, I mean, even, you know, the year before that, being the budget and planning committee chair, which I also kind of just felt like I had to take on. Maria and Luke were always there to support me and give feedback whenever needed anything. Um, and even now, they still do, of course. It's always appreciated, by the way, in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> um, I, I would say that the, the collaboration is so key, and most of what I do is, um, not, okay, 80% of what I do is logistical or organizational and clarity of information and communication. A little bit of delegation when people are giving me many suggestions, and then I make sure that that's okay with everyone, of course, before moving forward. Um, so I, I think I, I like the vice president, president approach. It mimics apprenticeship models, which are like by far, right, the most effective type of teaching model we have. I wish we could teach all our classes that way, almost like a, you know, if you want to take the research uh, perspective from like a, my scientific perspective, right, of having your PhD advisor and the graduate student, right? If you could do that with every single student, have your army of 10 students that you get to know really well and work them through a major even, like that that gives you such, um, such a depth of understanding and knowledge within that content area. And the connections are built up so organically and it, it almost feels right when you're doing it, right? Um, as opposed to like, let's say a large lecture hall for 500 students where you're, if you're doing a traditional lecture, right? Like who knows even what's, what's happening or what information is being transmitted. But I think taking those lessons from what education, the education research has for us, they, most of that translates like to me perfectly into any other kind of organizational or human structure you can kind of think of, at least kind of from the sociological kind of view. Sean might disagree with me, but. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And, and you talked about the tenure process being over and you're not new to this institution anymore, but you know, relatively pre pretty new in, in this role and in these leadership roles. And can you talk a little bit about what that's like being in a new institution and then going through the tenure process and then now you're in this emerging leader role where you're on BPC, you're, you're the co-chair there as well as uh, chairing your department? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, not going to say my experience is reflective of everyone else's on campus, of course, but um, I think the department's, are, are, sorry, the program, the physics program's culture and intentionality in the hire they made, even before we revisited all of our hiring processes, um, really made a difference in both how they, you know, the pool came about of candidates and how I was selected, how I was welcomed on campus from even from the interview day onward. Um, but they intentionally wanted to hire someone who had, you know, recent knowledge, skills, and abilities in physics education and that knew some of the research out there on how to best teach physics. So even though I was coming out pretty much fresh out of grad school, um, I had that chance and, you know, they saw that potential and went for it. And the tenure process for me was very much just like 100% from the start. This is about growth, about not just getting you used to campus, but also letting you grow and improve in that process and help help us improve our program. So it wasn't just a one-way street. It was very much a two-way street where we were exchanging ideas the whole time. Um, and a lot of my colleagues were, you know, would actually take things that I did and would take them to their classes almost within the same semester that I'd come up with them. So there's lots of communication and kind of back and forth. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cross-pollination. There we go. <laughs> um, so I, I think it, at no one, um, I, it felt kind of, that progression from going to 
a leadership role didn't feel unnatural for me. It did kind of feel weird when I kind of realized, wait a second, I'm not even tenured. Why, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, should I be doing this? Is this allowed? Um, and I think that's just the ingrained societal reaction I had of, you know, am I uh, old enough or even maybe even male enough <laughs> to, to be doing this, right? Um, or is it it's just my gray hair? Because I'm pretty gray for my age. Um, is that what, is that why people respect me? Is this like a weird gorilla thing going on? Um, so... <laughs> I, I think it, it felt natural because we had that trust and that collaboration. And um, yes, I could have been more of that dominant stereotype, but I, I always have to collaborate. I don't feel, it doesn't feel right any other way. And there was that trust built in with my, my elders, right? Like kind of like Luke said, and how they've placed me kind of at the forefront because there's that trust to organize and lead and try my best. And I'm always very upfront with my department. Even right now, I, in my emails, I still say, if I'm doing something stupid, tell me. Tell me right away. I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's that's important. That trust is important um, in education, in leadership, and and most human interactions. You could say even even economics. You could argue a lot of how the stock market's organized. That doesn't make sense. It's not built on that two-way trust of what a reasonable price is, right? So, yeah. 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 Maria, you're also department chair right now. Um, and I know our department. We've been working on our course line outline of record for our English 100 composition class is kind of our, that's the main focus of what we've been dealing with as a department because of uh, legislative changes, um, because that's what every student needs um, who's planning to transfer to university. And when we started looking at that core, one of the things that was in our mind was we wanted to come together as a department and, and agree so that then we could lead in response to these mandates that we were receiving or these, these sort of requests from other partners across campus. We felt like we were reacting, right? And we wanted to, instead of reacting, have a plan and then, you know, respond. Um, so can you, like, so my question, Maria, is, is as department chair, how are you thinking not just of how you're leading our department, but how our department could be leading on campus with the work that we've been doing, and maybe not just with the core, but in other areas that you are really focusing on as, as the chair right now? So I, I'm very proud of our department. You know, I've been, um, I've been at Maricosta 13 years and um, have seen the, the development, the growth, you know, from uh, Susan Herman was the chair when I came in and then she came back to being chair, she actually was on my hiring committee as well, obviously. So, you know, I think that we've had good models of um, forward thinking. However, I think there's also been, there was a lag, you know, and, and I don't know that the institution, you know, we hear this often was like ready, right? To make mm. some leaps. And quite honestly, I think the the legislation that came through AB 705, I, I actually appreciate that legislation to a certain degree because I think that, while we struggled to reconcile what we perceived as our academic freedom in terms of what we could teach and how we should be teaching, it really unveiled um, a lot of the gatekeeping mechanisms, you know, that we had in place, such as various levels of pre-transfer or remediation. Now, our campus does not have or did not have as many as others, and I won't name, you know, the other campuses, right? Um, so I have seen the progression, you know, towards uh, the right side of history and towards a, you know, a more um, just and equitable kind of educational trajectory for our students. 
Um, but I think what we're doing very consciously is organizing ourselves in what we call the communities of practice, right? And these are sort of smaller, more intimate, expert-like groups that, um, or interests, interest uh, groups that are not interest groups in the bad way, but, you know, ideas, concepts that are, that are going to ultimately help us um, respond and then build based on the gaps that like AB 705 is really forcing us to, to reckon with, right? And rather than seeing our students as the deficit because they're not, how is it that the institution has created the deficit within itself to not need, meet the needs of um, you know, the, the students? So the communities of practice within our department, I think have been very beneficial. They're very active. So we have the writing with machines that you started at Curry. And now that Jade Hidley is um, substituting for in your place, and um, we have the HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution Focus. We also have HSC, right? But HSC has now taken up, I mean, they are now sort of the department of um, pre-transfer, if you will, right? Which is increasingly shrinking, but HSC is the co-rec model that we have. So I think we're being intentional. We're modeling this idea of uh, being more careful, more intentional, with the thought of, um, with having our students, I don't want to say best interest, but like even our interest as, as instructors, like we're just not doing this to move students forward. We're doing this as instructors who are committed to understanding like our position and our role and how we need to continuously grow, you know, and professionally develop as well. We can't remain stagnant. So when I hear Joe saying that his department intentionally sought out a candidate who understood, you know, how to teach physics, right? The, the sort of everyday, not just the theories and concepts, right? That the lecture does, but how to actually apply that um, and teach it to students. That is part of our, our professional growth and our development. And I often look to, you know, my, and by theoretical philosophical prophets and Gloria Anzaldúa's concepts of conocimientos, she outlines that there are seven steps to coming into awareness. You know, if there's a, a, a direct translation to conocer, which is to know. And, um, and I feel like we're on that journey of uh, conocimiento in our department through these communities of practice. So Hopefully these can be models, right, for math. I know that math is doing some work around, they call them, they, they don't call it community of practice, they call it like task forces or work groups, but same concept, right? That we're, we're gathering in smaller pods and then we're, we're developing ways pedagogically and theoretically to address, again, how to best serve our students. So, um, and I just wanted to say that a mentoring, mentoring can also be, I guess, the institutional way of talking about eldership status. There are elders and then there are elders, right? There are elders that are older and then there are elders that are revered and also acknowledged by the community. So I appreciate Luke bringing that up. And I, and I also wanted to add that the community, it's, it's like reciprocity. There needs to be this sense of of um, recognition 
right, of the elder mentor by the community as well. So you just don't step in, right? You're you're kind of also welcomed or or given that place. So that mentorship in our department as as um, or in our departments and programs as um, as chairs, like if we can work on cultivating that mentorship and and succeeding, like who's next? And then let me teach you how this is. Let me be transparent, come along with me, right? Model, um, shadow, whatnot. We also need to offer people the opportunity to grow. Like don't leadership hoard, <laughs> like, don't do that, you know? Like put people in a position to chair something that where they might be able to exhibit uh, various strengths that otherwise would not be known. So, um, and that's also about the trust, right? That we that we want to have and build. So, yeah, thank you, Maria. That's something that I think about a lot because you know, once I got this full time tenure track job and then earn tenure, I feel like I've I've achieved my dream because of the people that came before me, that groomed me, that helped me, that, you know, practice those, those uh, teaching demonstrations with me for my interview, all of those different things. And, and I'm so grateful for that process and for those people. And I think now, like, I always kind of go to how can I, how can I extend opportunities to others? And how can I help them become leaders? I feel like that's my primary objective now. And, you know, you're saying a lot of what you're saying speaks to that. And so I kind of want to get it down to the level of counseling sessions and the, the level of um, our contact with students and what happens in the classroom. We've talked about leadership, but more of like the macro. And I feel like we got into the meso a little bit, but I want to go to that micro level. And maybe if, if uh, Maria and Joe can talk about what does it mean to be a leader in the classroom and how is that a reciprocal relationship versus the top down. And then, um, but I wanna start with Luke and like, what does it mean as a counselor when you're in those one-on-one -on -one sessions, you have a totally different dynamic usually than we do in the classroom, even though I know you teach classes as well, but what is it like um, being a leader in that space as a counselor and having those conversations with students about where they're at and where they're going? Yeah, it's a, imagine having a conversation with somebody. If you're the only one talking, you're not really having a conversation, right? So in a counseling session, uh, the student is the person coming and seeking uh, support, help, direction. And I, as a counselor, I'm there to kind of facilitate that conversation and ask, ask questions uh, under, to try to understand the student, uh, to be culturally responsive in my approach uh, to provide uh, the student, uh, to, to hear what the student is saying and try to, to really distill what is at the heart, the root of their, of, of their message uh, and, and get feedback from them. Am I hearing you right? Is this what you'd like to do? So not making assumptions. Uh, this is the style of counseling. I mean, you, you can call it uh, leadership, but it's, it's again, it's part of what I've always, I was talking about earlier in terms, it's a collaboration. I'm with the student in that moment. And that's who we're, uh, we're having a conversation. We're having to understand, uh, trying to come to an understanding. And by the end of that conversation, um, there may be a physical output, like a plan or something like that, or there 
that discussion itself might be uh, what was needed so that the student can come to a realization or an understanding or clarity for whatever they were looking for. Thanks, Luke. Um, Joe or Maria, we want to jump in with uh, what that looks like in the classroom for you? Because I mean, often, like, I think the students look to us to be leaders in the classroom, and there are, you know, assumptions and expectations going both ways. And so how do we manage those? It's actually funny that, you know, I, between what Luke and Marie have said, that's kind of how my classrooms are structured. Um, most of my interactions are mostly counseling kind of interactions with the student. Um, so what I, I have a flipped classroom set up, but obviously with 30 students, I can't leverage the power of having conversation one-on-one and really breaking things down with one person at a time. So we break up into communities or little groups of four, right? Three to four. And my role um, is to kind of patrol, not patrol, I don't want to say that word, um, roam around, keep an eye on everyone, keep an eye on everyone's body language, how things go are going, and listening on conversations like, man, I really don't get the step. And a lot of what I do the first three, three, four weeks of the semester is breaking down this idea that I have the knowledge and you have to somehow have me transfer my brain power to you and insert it into your brain like that Calvin and Hobbes comic. But the fact that as a student in the class, learn, learning is about failure, right? Like that, we were afraid to say it, but that's what it's about, right? And we, so what I do is I kind of take this uh, duplicity between learning as failure, the scientific method, and kind of the role of the instructor and the student and say, hey, this is all the same thing. It's still learning at the end of the day. So I have the students get comfortable with failing, with learning. And I, I have them call me over intentionally and say, hey, what's going on? What do you need? And they're like, well, I think it's this. Is this the right answer? I usually try to dodge that and say, well, why do you think it is that? You know, And I try to go for that more counseling heavy approach. And students get angry and irritated usually because they, they want that answer. They're perfectionist or they're bringing other other things like that, right? After many weeks, and I have weekly reflections deal on Canvas where students are just purely, there's no physics in there necessarily, they're just purely reflecting on their learning. Um, after 16 weeks of that, and if I'm lucky, I get them for the next semester in this sequence, they realize that, okay, I've grown, I've improved, and Joe was there maybe to help, but like that was me, that was my work, and I can take ownership of my own learning process in that way. So I don't provide leadership in the way that, like, I guess the stereotypical, like, charismatic storyteller with, you know, explosive demo and, oh, here's the physics thing. Oh my God, that's so crazy. Um, that's not me at all. I am zero percent. I'm, I'm usually with the students walking around between tables and I usually have students come up to show their work too. If I'm going to write something in the word, I usually tell them, what should I write next? What's the equation? What's the step? What should I do? So I think it's, it's, that's very much informed how I would lead in any other situation, because to me, it's, it's really the same thing. And, um, I think students appreciate it eventually. It's not always like a quick, like, I see what you're doing. I got, I got what you're doing. You're sneaky. It's, it's more the slower appreciation of what's been done, the mentorship involved. Of course, there's a lot of outside touches like office hours where students can't handle it. They, they're, they're, that perfectionism really gets to them, right? And of course, there's always the, the breakdown sessions where someone just, all the emotions flood through and we have to kind of talk about it. And that feels more like a counseling session one-on-one, -on -one, but, always been able to work through it with a student and help them figure out what it is they want. And usually, I mean, you know, schwaff a little bit here. I'm proud to say I've converted some people to doing physics as a career path. So I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> no, you, you should be proud of that. Yeah, and what, it's my what little heart. Saying, 
Yeah. <laughs> I think it goes beyond the perfectionism. They've been conditioned that there yeah. is a right answer to find, right? Yes. And you have it and they don't, yeah. right? I mean, but when you look at physics, when you, I, I mean, I always think of Newton and just like the, the, like the, the idea that to have innovation, you need to go away from there's always a right answer. You have to oh, deviate absolutely. from that path, right? Yeah. And I think the same thing in writing, yes, Maria, where it's like they think that there's a certain way to write that is ultimately the correct way, and they've been conditioned to believe this. So when you say, no, your writing is valid, the, your style is valid, you know, they're very apprehensive to even accept those kind of ideas. Is, is that something that you experience often, Maria? Yes, I mean, all the time. I mean, I think what you're talking about is is the conditioning, you know, that students come both straight out of high school and even older returning students, because we have this notion of what education and schooling is about. Um, and it's, it's what Freire calls the banking system, right? And he says, uh, Paulo Freire says, they're open, they're just like open uh, receptacles, and then we just dump information in there. And like when we go to a bank, we deposit, and so deposit knowledge. And, um, you know, Freire's another person that I read. I have my students read chapter two on the banking system. <laughs> Same that chapter probably, two that that yeah, list of that, the things that they expect from the teacher, right? Yes, absolutely. Right. So, um, and that's good for all students. It's good for all professors to even unlearn our own methodology as well. But that that means we sort of have to displace, you know, and decenter ourselves as the instructor. And for some of us, that's more difficult, um, and become more what he calls co-creators of knowledge. We co-create a learning and a teaching experience. That to me though, is very much about like the community, right? A community and based on popular education, like you learn from what's around you and you learn from each other. You learn from, you know, your home life and you bring your home life in. And um, so all of that is I think intertwined, but it's the, the, the current sort of um, structure of, of learning and, and the paradigms are, are still very much entrenched and committed to maintaining sort of the power differential of I'm the all-knowing teacher and the student is the, the one that's just going to take in the information and learn. But I have found that when I open it up and I'm flexible, which is the majority of the time, sometimes I do stand up there and lecture and I need to deliver and, and deposit, <laughs> you know, um, I ain't going to lie. But then I check myself and I tell my students that. And I think they appreciate it, as Joe says, they become more meta, more, more meta reflective of the learning experience. And ultimately, that's a good thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the the, the decentered classroom, um, I think, is a powerful pedagogy, right? Um, or an, ex an expression of a powerful pedagogy. Um, and and <laughs> Joe, I, 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 I feel you when you say, like, students have to get used to that. There's very few who are like, sweet, this is how it's working. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's partly because because it's not part of their training, you know, throughout their educational experiences, but also because it does demand that our students then occupy a leadership role uh, in the class. And so uh, two things. Um, one, we, we brought up leadership hoarding earlier and how as, as faculty, we tend to do this the same faculty member will go from leadership role to leadership role and not create space for other 
you know, of our colleagues to, to get that experience and grow and, and, and offer us new voices. That happens in our classrooms, right? Especially I think when we decenter, there are some confident students that take that, sort of occupy that vacuum, right? Where we step out, they step in. So one, I think we have to be cognizant of, of if we're gonna decenter our classrooms, we also need to be training our students as leaders, right? And so that's something I've been really challenged by, something I've been trying to practice more semester after semester, um, at first, it was just, you know, we're going to have a discussion and I'm going to pick a name and this week you're going to lead. And I did that partly because I thought, well, then they have to do the reading because they're going to lead. And so that's like a sneaky way for me to make them do their homework. Um, <laughs> but when I thought like when I started to really embrace it, it was more Maria what you're talking about. It's students leading the discussion reveal interpretations of a text that, that I'm not capable of doing. And as a community, we agree that that is the meaning of the text. And we get to spaces we never could get to had that student not led. So it's it's a much more meaningful decentered classroom than this sort of arbitrary, I just want students to construct knowledge and I'm just gonna sort, sort of allow that space for that to happen, right? Um, so maybe I've been interested, I've been thinking about this um, and we can, we can tackle this in, in a couple of different ways. I don't really wanna control it too much, but how should students be leading right now? Um, in our classrooms, on campus, and what are we doing as faculty to sort of facilitate that, help mentor and sort of partner with student leaders? Um, and maybe Luke, do you wanna kind of start us off there? And again, I don't wanna direct it too much, but what are we thinking? Yeah, you know, I, I just give you a, a great example. Um, that just happened uh, a week or two ago uh, at Academic Senate. Um, uh, Professor Sinar Lomeli, who's also counselor for the Puente program, had brought several of her students to Academic Senate to make public comment. And uh, they very eloquently uh, established, uh, you know, introduced themselves, established kind of uh, what the topic was going to be, uh, be about, and then asked us a question. And it wasn't, they, they didn't come randomly, they came prepared. And, and what they had done was in, in the classroom, they had talked about um, the educational pipeline, especially for Latinx and Chicanx students. And uh, they read the report, the left out report by the uh, Campaign for College Opportunity uh, that came out in uh, 2018. And then um, they also read a report from UCLA uh, that uh, it was called Still Falling Through the Cracks. And then they looked at data uh, about uh, students, disaggregated data uh, from our own local uh, high school, uh, K through 12 district, Oceanside uh, district, and, and seeing that there's, there's a lot of equity gaps there. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? That they, they're the ones who made it to college, okay? They're, they got here, but what does that mean for their, their siblings, their cousins, um, for those who will come uh, after them, and what does that mean for their future? If only out of a hundred, uh, you know, Chicanx uh, students that start in elementary school, that only less than half of a person will ever get to a doctorate degree. What does that mean for them? Uh, and do they have an opportunity to change that? And so, involving students, uh, like you know, being culturally relevant, bringing in material that is really going to affect them, has a direct effect on them, uh, it talks about them, and have them interpret it, uh, and then do something about it, take some action, like go to academic senate and say, hey, leaders, what are we doing about 
representation here uh, and academic senate. Like, you don't look like us. I mean, Maricosta, we've kind of changed the, the look a little bit, but can we sustain that, right? I think one of you mentioned earlier, how do we sustain that? And so we have to look at those structures that are in place. But I think that that, that is a wonderful way to do that. Uh, another way is uh, you have the student clubs, but you also, you know, you have service learning, work-based learning, all of these things that take what's the students learning in class out of the classroom where they can make real change. And if I make, and so they don't necessarily have to be a leader, the, like the, the president of a club, they don't have to be whatever, but they're, they're in the community doing something. And um, that's, that's just as important, right? So I just also just wanna say uh, in my dissertation when I was working on my doctorate, uh, I looked, I used critical race theory, but I also used um, some leadership frameworks. And one of them was a tempered radicals, and no, this notion of a tempered radical that um, Mayerson and, and Scully uh, wrote about in 1995. And this is that, uh, you know, you don't have to be the, the president of the college. You don't have to be the, the dean uh, of your school to be in that type of position to make changes, to to influence and be a leader that you could, in in spaces where you know I have to, if I'm a collaborator, collaborator, uh, my approach is not to burn bridges. So I have to use verbal jujitsu when somebody talks to me in a way that I don't appreciate. So I have to use a form of language and registry that will I'll be able to communicate my message, and and very subtle but very sharp uh, manner, right? Uh, and we have to also, they talk about this st strategic alliance building. And that's what I talk about. Like if you, if my, in my approach of a community building, I have, there are different groups on campus that I need in, in order to be able to thrive. And so uh, where there might be some clear animosity uh, between faculty and administrators, uh, I have to work with our college president and our college vice president. Right, and so I need to make that relationship work. Be uh, find that mutual uh, benefit and alliance. Um, otherwise, nothing's going to get done. Right, and so while somebody who's not in my position might see me and say, "Hey, you're not, you know, uh, why are you working with them?" Well, gotta gotta take a step back and understand why I'm working with them in order to advance what we need collectively, right, uh, as faculty. And so uh, these are, I, I know I went on a tangent, but these, these are, this is the tempered radicals framework that I think we can really help students understand that they have a lot of power in their positionality. Even though they might be on the bottom of the totem pole, they have a lot of power and what they can do uh, in and outside of the classroom, especially in their communities. That's awesome. Um, Joe, you want to jump in? Sure, yeah. Just a lot of pinging thoughts between what you've said, Curry, and Luke, too. And I think the one thing that um, that really has stuck out to me, too, just by, you know, by doing this in my classrooms and by leading as well, is also, it's almost like a pet peeve of mine at this point, but this idea of intelligence and, um, like, very fixed mindset that is immediately associated with those ideas. Um, the fact that we're seeing equity gaps already in K through 12, the fact that this has been studied since and known since the 50s and 60s about how easily a teacher can influence those gaps or make them happen, even at such an early age, 
and all the preconceived notions of intelligence and how that works really, um, that's all that's being deconstructed in, in my class and what I try to deconstruct the students outside of class. And I think that informs um, students in terms of how they can lead, um, how they can kind of find that potential of themselves that yes, I can be a physicist or, or deconstructing that, that phrase like, oh, I'm not good at the math. Like, no, no, you don't want to be right now and that's okay. <laughs> you can be if you want to and you kind of like it. It just takes time, right? So it's deconstructing a lot of that. That I think is what would unlock like a solid leadership foundation. It brings about that idea we said, reference back to like, knowing that you don't know something and that that's okay and being okay with it and knowing that you can know about it. Um, it, would, it then like fosters the collabor collaborative intent. And I think maybe the one thing that we could also suggest to or talk about to is empathy, right? Being aware of where people are coming from. And um, even if you've come from an underprivileged background, being aware of there are people that might be worse off, better off, and that if you're trying to work together genuinely, you know, there's no, you're not making assumptions about each other or what you're trying to accomplish, that you want to work towards a common goal. That, that can give great outcomes from a leader or non-leader perspective, right? So um, I guess those are my, my thoughts so far. Maria, how are you seeing student leaders emerging and, and where do you see them, you know, really being powerful and in your class on campus? You know, this is when you know you're getting old, right? <laughs> you're like, I mean, when I, after George Floyd and I saw young people out there, younger people out there, you know, I'm a mother of a 14 year old and a 10 year old and my 14 year old wanted to go out there too. But then I'm like, it's coronavirus, I know. you know, everything, like we haven't even talked about that. No. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just, I'm very moved and inspired. And I think it's because like they're, you know, youth, and I'm, and again, I'm, I'm assuming most of our students are, are young, but like there is this young fervor, you know, and spirit that, um, that we can learn from, you know, that we can really embrace and, and hold near and, and use that as, as a call, you know, as a calling. And so I'm very, I'm very inspired. I'm very moved by, you know, at least that specific generation or, or, or group of young people that are socially radically minded and are wanting to really transform and move forward, you know, as a society. And there's a lot to learn there. They're very well organized. I mean, what they're, for example, I went on a caravan protest because I thought that was the safest thing. And it was intentional. Like I couldn't figure out why we were in the same spot for half hour, you know? And then I was like, and then my daughter's like, I need a pee. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, how am I gonna do this? But that was the intent to disrupt the movement of everyday life, the movement of normalcy, right? Because normal, as we know, what the BLM movement has taught us continues to be violent against black people, right? that even the norm this the norm today so it was like hey sit with that and sort of deconstruct it but that took a lot of layers to and you know to peel for for me so so i learned for sure like how to sit with that discomfort and why we weren't moving if we were to be a caravan and not a parade right um so i feel like there's there's um 
definitely lessons to be learned. We need to observe that movement, this current movement that's still happening, even though the media is not, you know, um, reporting. And, um, but if we're in an educational environment, we should be doing student development as well. Like we have, we have a, we have a student development um, program, don't we? Or office mm -hmm. or something like that. Student we have life a person. And leadership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Student life and leadership. Thank you. So we have that, like they should be developing our students through various trainings. And that's something maybe that in the future, um, there's, there's a course associated or some type of like credit, if you will, to incentivize, um, not just the student leaders, but those that, that want to do work or maybe are already doing work in their community, right? And they can get some credit for that. I mean, we have independent studies in each discipline, like available and within our disciplines, we could do that and cultivate sort of a, a curriculum or some type of like some tenets, you know, of development, but there's definitely a lot to learn us to, to impart that knowledge, but also for us to learn from what our students are already doing. Um, that's all I can add at this point, you know. That, that's that's a lot to add, Maria, and I, I really appreciate you bringing up the current moment and this generation of emerging leaders that we see in our students and people of that uh, younger generation, because we we see it all the time that um, we we don't really, you know, our most revered leaders and respected leaders throughout history, we don't appreciate them until long after they're gone, right? I think of like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and how you know, um, we we hold them in such high regard now, but at the time that they were radical and leading, you know, there was a lot of contention and, and a lot of opposition to their messages. And that happens with all, all of the great leaders. And that's happening right now with, with this younger generation and the criticisms that are, um, uh, that people have about this style of activism. And I think, you know, at the time of this recording, we are all grieving, um, you know, the loss of Justice Ginsburg, right? And at the same time, we see this this new revitalized BLM movement, and and it goes beyond even BLM, even though that should remain the focus. We're seeing leaders in a different way now, and um, it, it gives me a lot of hope. And and I want to make sure that I I pay close attention to those things that are happening and how they are unfolding. Uh, because it goes from every different sector. When we look at the sciences and and even just any kind of um, response to the pandemic, there are obvious gaps in our generation of how to address and deal with that. Those gaps are going to be filled by those who are living right now, and, and those younger generations that are going to school, going to medical school, becoming nurses, and, and doing things um, that are now going to be informed by this time that we're living in. And the same thing goes with racial injustice. The same thing goes with the office of the presidency. That there, there's so many different things, and I just want to, you know, keep our attention on that, and so that we continue to be learners and not be too solidified. You know, they say that that conservatism, and I'm not talking just political, but in all ways, you know, it it, it increases in us over time. And um, one way to stay young and fresh is to to kind of thwart that or to fight against that, and and to see the new things as not trivial or, or um, you know, kind of like a passing phase, but to really 
give it serious consideration and thought. And I think that's a way that we can honor our younger generation since we did talk about, we started this conversation about um, honoring uh, those that came before us. Right on. Well, I think we're getting pretty close to the hour. Um, <laughs> and, I, and actually, I've wrote, written down like five more things I want to talk about. But I, I have a few, too. <laughs> <laughs> we can't keep you here all day, but Let, let's do part two. Yeah, we got <laughs> yes. I just yeah. want to hang out all day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for for participating. Um, we do want to do a follow up. Uh, um, for sure with students. Um, we'd love to get some student leaders to have a similar conversation. Um, maybe maybe um, we can get a couple recommendations uh, from you folks if you have current students um, that you're counseling or teaching that you think would be a good fit. We'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Any final thoughts, Sean, or any final thoughts, anybody? I think I just threw up all my final thoughts. Right yes, there. you did. <laughs> <laughs> Our guests, anything, any parting words? On leaders, I want to say justice for Brianna Taylor. Mm. Yep, mm. and all my relations. Maybe uh, something classroom centered. We can we can start asking maybe a, a question of why aren't we teaching about teaching or teaching about learning in the classrooms? Why is that not a requirement for our students? Right, and I think that would maybe would tie back to Maria's earlier point of student development. Right, like if if students had college preparedness classes that required, you know, hey, this is what learning's about, this is what teaching's about. I think that would foster a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, what being a leader is, what being, what collaboration means and so on. Um, just a thought that I've always had, never knew how to implement. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna give you the last word, Luke. Well, I just wanna thank you all for this conversation. You know, I did a, a doctorate in educational leadership and at no point in that program did did we have a conversation like this one, mm -hmm. and this is a this is important. I think there's a lot of books out there on leadership that are touted and you know theories and this and that, but you know when it comes down to it, um, we need to learn from each other. We need to uh, be responsive and reflective in the moment, and uh, have compassion in the end. I think for ourselves and others. Awesome. Thank, thank you, Luke. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Maria. Yeah, thank you all. And to your thank point, you. Luke, this is why this is one of my favorite things. So thank you for being part of one of our favorite things. Yes. <laughs> thank you. So really, this episode was inspired by you, Curry. And I, I brought the idea to you because you had said in a previous episode, our first episode of the season, that leaders are so important. And I just want to know, like, where were you coming from when you were saying that? And you're saying more now than ever. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think especially, I, so I was saying that in the context of our, of this historic moment, right? I mean, we are in a, 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 a season of fires and flooding. We are in the midst of a pandemic. Um, um, there is an uprising demanding racial justice, um, and there is uh, an incredibly divisive um, uh, campaign for not just the presidency, but, but Senate, uh, congressional seats, school boards. I mean, 
we, we are in a justice seat that just opened. Yeah, I, absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. So so when I said that, I was definitely speaking from this moment that leadership matters because 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 of the uncertainty and because really, I mean, there's lots of ways you can think of this. Um, everything is being dismantled and that can look like dystopia that can look like, you know, um, um, just total chaos, but it also can look like opportunity. So it's going to be the leaders who step up that that really you know, take, take us in a direction that will, will affect us for generations. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of always say this thing and, and now I'm rethinking it a bit and I, I would like your thoughts on it, especially based on the conversation we just heard that was so rich in talking about what different models of leadership look like and um, how people are prepared or not prepared for leadership. I always say kind of like the people crave leadership, like they want it, right? Like that it, it will help them move forward with something or, or they're looking for leadership to, to kind of be a catalyst to get going on something. Right. But at the same time, when leadership is present, it is heavily criticized. And maybe that's for good reason. But I mean, what do you think about that? Like that people really want leadership, but at the same time, anytime it's, it's expressed or displayed, there is going to be a, a lot of criticism of people in those positions. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think we can make a distinction between promotion, like climbing a ladder and, and the ambition of an individual to move into those higher levels of, of well, personal gain, really, right? Um, all that comes with that. We can make a distinction between promotion and, and leadership. And I think that's what I really appreciated about the conversation we just had, right? You know, the, the emphasis on who I am right? Who I am determines how I lead, not just the style of my leadership, um, but also the model of my leadership. Um, what am I drawing on to even sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, characterize how I want to lead? And I love, you know, um, Luke ex sort of describing this, this, this process of someone coming into leadership because a community surrounded them and invited them and, you know, um, um, enabled them, right? So to your question, if that's how one comes to leadership, then of course there's going to be criticism because leaders, you know, the, the, the buck stops with the leader, right? But if the community is behind that leader, there's also empathy built in and there's understanding built in and there's a willingness to trust beyond this mistake you just made or this errant path you just led us down, um, there are opportunities still. We trust you, take us. That I think is very different from someone who's promoted and then never really wanted the responsibility of the community, simply wanted the sort of the, the gains that come um, with that. that, that's, that that's a leader that won't receive criticism, criticism constructively, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and what Luke said about that kind of the community or someone else extending that invitation, it really runs counter to the way I think leadership is typically um, described in our culture, because there's an idea of like, if you want something, go out and get it. Right. If there's, you know, if something doesn't exist, you go out there and make it and fill it, as opposed to taking that time being an apprentice as joe talked about right yeah. and and being groomed for something and then being invited into leadership as opposed to just assuming leadership and so i think that that's a difficult thing for us to wrestle with and a difficult thing that perpetuates the the cycles of having the same kinds of leaders who look similar to one another and excluding you know those of marginalized populations because they're not being invited in and 
culturally, they may not be um, subscribing to this idea of you just go out and, and be that leader as opposed to someone saying, hey, we need you for this. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I think that's the other reason why I think right now leadership matters so much. And I'm thinking, you know, now just as an individual, you know, I'm a white, uh, 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 middle class, Protestant upbringing, um, cisgendered male, right? Um, and I've been privileged to lead in different committees, different initiatives uh, within my department, on campus, et cetera. And I really feel that as I join, you know, a movement of anti-racism and I really reflect on my own, you know, how do I, how do I be an ally in this work? Um, for me, it's, it's not just I need to step away so others can lead and sort of just get out, just get out everybody's way and go to the back of the room. It's, it's how, can I, how can I listen? How can I be led by? And how can I support, right? And so I'm, there's still a responsibility on my behalf um, to invest in and to work, right? Um, and, and I want that to be led by a colleague who, um, whose voice matters right now, right? Whose voice is, is needed right now, um, um, especially along the lines of, of you know, race, gender, um, voices that have been marginalized, so. Yeah. yeah, I feel similar. But I've been put in the position. I've been asked, I've been invited to be a leader, I feel like. But I always think of the the, the term with the hyphen servant leader, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that really helps ground me in like not getting too big of a head about things, not becoming arrogant or dictatorial in my leadership, but more of like, if if you show there's a vision and you empower people to not buy into, but contribute to whatever it is you want to do collectively, that intrinsic motivation, I mean, you can get people to work for free, right? And right. see, it's like getting people to work. See, that language too is a little problematic, yeah, yeah. but, exactly. but, but um, empowering them to feel like what they do matters and what they think matters. And when they contribute in the ways that come from them, as opposed to someone telling them this is how you should contribute, the innovation, the the diversity of views, the 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 um, more prosperous outcomes, the better questions, I feel like are really uh, born out of that style of leadership. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and I think I mean so that. The, the concept of a servant leader is also something that's going to grate against our, our capitalistic sort of, you know, uh, uh, mindsets, right? Uh, because to, to serve, the way we actually live that out is also to receive a paycheck and receive in response to that service, right? And so to really serve the way with the heart that you're describing, it's going to take, you know, you know, as, as Maria and Luke and Joe were reframing this, it's, we need to think about leadership as it's contextualized by models, by cultures, right? Um, and, and we need to start to really recognize the patriarchal, the, the, the colonialist, you know, uh, sort of bent in our, in our sort of what we feel is, are, are the models of leadership, right? We got to really deconstruct those and, and, and challenge those. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm really glad we had Maria on because uh, with her time as Academic Center President, I felt... Yeah. that she really disrupted that okay. um, traditional model of leadership in the way that she partnered with people and the way that she um, was vulnerable and expressed herself in, in venues like All College Day. And uh, I think that just having someone on 
with Luke, with Joe, it, it just showed us also the diversity of leadership that we have. And I talked about that last time in, in our last podcast. And and I just, I, I mean, I'm appreciative. And, and I feel like these, these uh, folks are people that I look to um, as, as not just leaders, but as servant leaders, as people who um, are equally respectful to students and the highest level of administrators. And I think it's a great model for all of us to um, at least observe, but, but uh, I, would, I would hope follow as well. Yeah, right on. Well, it was an awesome conversation. Super good. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll do it again. Let's hear what the students have to say about leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. All right. right Well, thanks, Sean. Thank you. This episode was produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia created the show notes and manages our social media. Episodes of the Safe Topics podcast are now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please download and subscribe. Thank you for listening.